This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Third Squad is a documentary podcast about war. Every episode contains strong language and descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for all listeners. I do remember when they gave us a briefing of like, yeah, we're going to Sangin. And they pulled out the pictures of fires of our PB that we were going to, and there was fucking bullet holes all over the walls. And I was like, holy fuck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if you ever thought this was a game, it fucking ain't. This is life, dude. This is where we're going. There's no, there's no backing out. You signed up for this shit. Let's go. I'm Elliot Woods. This is Third Squad. Episode 5. Nothing to Lose. Tommy and I are in South Dakota now to visit 3rd Squad veterans Brian Shearer and John Bollinger. We drove 1,300 miles north from Houston across Pancake Flat, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska to get here. And it was a welcome change of scenery when the Black Hills erupted from the horizon just outside of Rapid City. Unfortunately, we were on the interstate, so there were a lot of billboards cluttering the view, including a lot of military recruiting billboards. There's another one, Marines Fight to Win, a billboard that says Marines Fight to Win in all capital letters. It's got a group of Marines on a firing line dressed in desert camouflage, looking down the barrel of their rifles. There hasn't been a draft since the Vietnam War. Today's military is known as the all-volunteer force, which means the military has to get people to enlist by choice. The easiest people to recruit are teenagers, and the military knows just how to lure them in, with 40-foot glossy billboards and commercials that look like video games. Like this one from the late 90s, where a Marine fights a dragon with a sword on a bridge made of lasers. It is more than a trial by fire. It is a rite of passage. The marketing is like a precision-guided munition aimed directly at the most vulnerable part of the adolescent male psyche. The part that wants more than anything to become a real man. The few, the proud, the marines. But Brian Shearer, he didn't need to be sold. He came to the recruiter with his mind made up, gung-ho and ready to see the world beyond South Dakota. I didn't have anything to lose, right? You know, like, not that that's a great way to out and look at look at life, but yeah, I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. Like, I made a will. I fucking gave my PlayStation to my brother. Like, that was that was like the extent of my fucking belongings. You know what I mean? You got to be 18 years old to sign your life over to the military. But there's an exception. With your parents' signature, you can join at 17. It's like a permission slip for the most insane field trip imaginable. That's what Brian Shearer did. With his parents' permission, he committed himself to four years in the Marines before he was old enough to vote or buy a pack of cigarettes. He shipped off to boot camp a week after he graduated from high school in 2009. Eventually, he wound up in third squad with John Bollinger, training at Camp Pendleton and deploying to Sangin in 2011. Shearer grew up here in Rapid City. He's six feet tall with dark hair that's almost always under a baseball cap and he wears square-toed cowboy boots that make him seem taller. When I was growing up, I was in the recruiter office all the fucking time. It's been the same in the mall forever. And they've got Army and Navy and 
Air Force and all that shit. And the Marines are tucked like way in the back. I was doing pull-ups in the Marine recruiting office when I was like eight. Oh, wow. Yeah, you do like X amount of pull-ups and you get a poster or some shit. I've had all the posters of like the dudes in the fucking grass all like cami painted out. and You know what I mean? Just that kind of shit. John Bollinger was an eager recruit, too. I wasn't really thinking. I just wanted to fight. That's what I wanted to do. I mean, plain and simple. Like, I was joining the Marine Corps because I wanted to fight. And I didn't care if I was shot, stabbed, blown up, freaking whatever, you know? I was just like, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fucking do it. Bollinger, whose grandfather was a Marine, grew up about 300 miles away from Shear in Cheyenne, Wyoming. The guys call him Bo. He's small and has a scruffy beard and smudged glasses. But his baggy clothes hide a chiseled frame. He was 18 when he went to talk to the recruiter, so he didn't need to get his parents involved. I signed the contract to be an Army Ranger. And then, see, this is where I fucked up. I talked to the Marine Corps recruiter. I was just, I was actually went over to talk shit to him. And I was talking all this shit, and he's like, well, you know, you can be in the Army, but you know what you get out of the Marine Corps? And I'm like, what? And he's like, a lifetime of pride. (laughs) And I'm like, ooh, I'm tough. And so, yeah, I joined the Marine Corps because I, you know. You fell for that shit, hook I fell for that shit. Shearer and Bo are both 30 now. They're both married with two sons, and they both live in South Dakota. Shearer's back in his hometown, Rapid City. And Bollinger lives about 45 minutes away in a smaller town called Spearfish. Tommy and I met up with the two of them at Bo's house one morning in mid-March 2021. The deployment brought these guys together like brothers. And for a while after Bo moved to South Dakota, they saw a lot of each other. They worked on wildland firefighting crews together, along with another third squad veteran, Taylor Moody. But then life got in the way. Shearer kept the adrenaline up by getting a full-time job with the Rapid City Fire Department. If there is a hell, it's sitting in a fucking cubicle. Bo developed a fascination with trees and became an apprentice arborist for a company called the Tree Wise Men. On a day-to-day basis, I play the Lorax. As Bo and Shearer's families grew, work and parenting didn't leave much time for socializing, even with old buddies from the Corps. By the time we meet up, it's been so long since they've seen each other that Bo has to give Shearer a tour of his house, which he's lived in for almost three years. And a hot tip. Look at you, dude. Fucking moving on up. Yeah. Nice, man. Well, congrats, dude. Good spot, huh? You gotta come check out the new new crib we got, too. I didn't know you guys moved. See? We're not good friends. No. We're, we're people that like... Yeah, we're people with families. <laughs> Back in Sangin, Shearer was 3rd Squad's designated marksman, or DM. He carried a special M16 rifle with a suppressor and scope called a Mark 12, designed to take out enemies at long range. He grew up shooting and hunting and wanted to become a DM even before he joined the Corps. I joined to fucking stack bodies. Like, I knew what I wanted to do. Not in a crazy way. Like, does that make sense? Though, Like, not in a psycho way of saying that, but, like... That was my perception of what the military was, and that was what I could do. Bo was 3rd Squad's radio operator. It was his job to call in medevac helicopters whenever 3rd Squad Marines were critically wounded. It was also his job to call in fire support like airstrikes and mortars whenever they got in trouble. It's like, hey, fires, we're in a gunfight. This is where I'm at. The enemy's this far out in this direction or next to this building. Fucking get a gun on target, you know? Like, we need it now. In their different roles, Bo and Shearer developed unique perspectives on the war and on the killing. Shearer learned what the enemy looked like through a high-powered scope. Bo learned to imagine the battlefield from the sky, broken into grid squares and dotted with rooftops. He could make entire buildings disappear, along with the people in them. They perform these tasks in a fixed area of operations, or AO. That's the term used to describe the patch of ground that the PB Fires Marines were responsible for, where almost all of 3rd Squad's missions took place. Even for someone like me who's been there, picturing the PB Fires AO is kind of tricky, and I want to get a clear sense of the scale and the important landmarks. 
So after we eat some breakfast with Bo's sons and his wife, Hannah, I ask Shear and Bo to draw maps for me. I can already tell that my map's gonna look like shit compared to yours. <laughs> I'm already drawing too big. Uh-oh, Shear's mixing in some blue for the river. You gotta get that river, dude. If I don't draw the canals and the Mississippi and shit in blue, I'm gonna get lost. Third Squad had nicknames for the canals that splintered off from the Hellman River. They called the largest one the Mississippi. It was the big main canal. Yeah, it split off here. I'll draw was it that in deep? a second. It was about waist deep. On Bo's map, the Hellman River dips down from the top right corner, which would be the northeast, and then it turns back up to the top left corner in a gentle curve. The Mississippi splits off from the Hellman and snakes down the middle of the page, dividing the AO in half. They also had nicknames for the fields, the clusters of houses, and the other terrain features in the AO. Ten years out from Sangin, those nicknames roll off Sheer and Bo's tongues as if they were there yesterday. Yeah, AK Alley, PKM Parkway. That was fucking Highmar Village. Yeah. Come down to the 611. Up here's Cotaze. Near the bottom center, Bo draws a few little blocks surrounded by a big square. I'm doing shrunk down fires. Not to scale. More to memory. This is patrol base fires. Bo draws the guard posts on each corner and a squiggly line around all of it to mark the concertina wire on the outer perimeter. I think you got a pretty good fucking map yeah, here, man. Yeah, I think you got a pretty good map. Looking at Bo's map, I'm blown away by how small the PB Fires AO appears. Mile and a half. I, I was, I was going to go a little bit further than that. Mile and I bet half it was. Any direction from fires. So yeah. Roughly three clicks. I was going to say three clicks. I was going to say three clicks. Click is military jargon for a kilometer, just shy of two thirds of a mile. So that means the AO was less than two miles across. I walk farther than that with my dog most days. It's crazy to think that such a small and sparsely populated area could generate so much bloodshed. And PB Fires wasn't an island unto itself. It was part of an archipelago of outposts up and down the Helmund River. Each with its own AO patrolled by a similar group of young Marines and resetting every night with a new crop of IEDs and Taliban fighters. But Bo says a lot of the time the PB Fires AO could seem pretty boring. Oh no, we just like moseyed. Like, seriously, that was what we did, was just mosey around the AO. Mosey, and occasionally get into full-blown gunfights. The mission was to conduct coin, counterinsurgent operations. So that would be talking to people, getting information, this kind of thing. But our secondary mission, I would say, to that, or even primary, after we started getting hit, was to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. Every once in a while, they'd bring a Marine from psychological operations who would blast music from a loudspeaker to piss off the Taliban. Yeah, he was playing like Britney Spears and shit. Oh, or Taylor Swift. Yeah. Yeah. Like he this, fucking hated Taylor Swift, man. Music, yeah. And would you just patrol until you got into contact? Yep. Uh, basically. Then, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And then fight it out until it ended and then walk home? Or go uh, find more contacts. Uh, well, it depended, depending on where we were at for ammo and where we were at in the AO and where we were at in the day. So if they break contact for lunchtime and we've still got, you know, 75% of our ammo, we're not going to go home. We're going to go try and find a spot to set up an ambush and wait for them to come back out from their lunch. Because that's something the Taliban does is like, they stop for lunch. They're like... <laughs> You're like, oh, man, it's fun having this gunfight with you, but uh, I am famished. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta go pray and eat some bread. Can we meet up in an hour? Bo starts drawing again, using a number two pencil to mark tree lines that the Taliban use to hide their movements and set up ambushes. They also use them for cover when planting IEDs, like the ones that caused the mass casualties in June. So where... Where was the, the attack on the 9th? O'Brien was here? Here. This was O'Brien. Bo points to a spot just to the left of PB Fires where he's drawn a tree line next to a small canal. That's where he found that big old chunk of O'Brien's leg. 
Because it was in, in the canal. They were on that Yeah, tube. they were on that canal. <laughs> Just outside the perimeter of PB Fires, Bo marks three bridges across three canals. I remember wading across those canals, but I never set foot on the bridges. No one did after June 12th, when Joshua McDaniels was blown in half after crossing the last of them. The first in a chain of explosions that day. Are we going to put all the casualties down? Oh, or just... fuck it, yeah, dude. I mean, everybody got hit that day. Okay. Rich, Lopez. Fucking just start making X's, dude. It was every... I mean... I'm sure Roman was here. The paper around the bridges fills up with Shearer's red X's. Leon, Clemens, Taylor. Casualties of the four IEDs that went off on June 12th. Frank, he stepped on one. Single amp. single amp. Yep. Voucher. I list the names of the wounded off to the side under the date of each attack to try to make an accurate record. Gonna run out of run out of room on that paper there, bud. Shearer's running out of paper too. His exes also marked the Marines who suffered traumatic brain injuries. Did you get a TBI that day? Uh, yeah, I got. Did you I got yourself me. On yep, that, that was Covar uh, Alonzo and me. Well, it's, you got hit that day too, didn't you? Yeah, yeah Brian Shearer. Basically everybody. Basically I mean, everybody. pretty much everybody. That was a bad day right there. When Shearer and Bo finished tallying the dead and wounded, there are 17 names on the June 12th list. Then they start talking about June 15th. Shearer starts making a new group of X's next to an area shaded green and labeled Good Field. Six more names. Each one of these X's marks a friend. And after those three days in June, the war became personal. Everybody was the enemy, and therefore I want to destroy my enemy because I want to stay alive. I, I want to kill everybody. Shearer and Bo tell me the higher-ups relaxed the rules of engagement, or ROEs. Basically, how much force they were allowed to use whenever they got into a fight. Okay, so our ROEs were fucking terrible when we first got there. Tell people what ROE is. Our rules of engagement. Our rules of engagement are fucking terrible. Pretty much if we weren't getting shot at, we couldn't do shit. So we were getting ambushed a lot. We were getting a lot of IEDs and everything like that. And after after June, it kind of became like the Wild West because, you know, it takes shitty things to change things. After the 12th and the 15th and the 9th, there were no ROEs. The ROEs were to our discretion. And... Hurting people do hurtful shit, and hurtful shit is what we did. <laughs> what we really did. We'll be back after the break. Storm and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He got his yo-yos to Europe in time. 
But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning. Good morning, man. I got you some donuts. Fuck yeah. You got chocolate and like some glazed Krispy Kreme style. That's awesome. I met up with Bo and Shearer together, but I also spent time with each of them alone. Today, I'm hanging out with Shearer. We're both hunters, so I ask him if we can go out together. One morning before dawn, he picks me up in his well-worn Nissan Frontier and we drive up into the Black Hills. So just give me a quick couple sentences of rundown of what we're going to do this morning. Well, if the fucking weather would have been right, we were going to be driving through some fresh snow, looking for cat tracks, and then setting up and doing some stands and hunting some mountain lions, but uh, it's fucking dry. There's an icy crust on top of the last patches of snow, so we're probably scaring every animal within earshot into the next county. The goddamn homo sapiens walking around. <laughs> the last time Shearer and I went hiking, he was also dressed in camo and carrying a rifle with a big scope. I do. I love being out here and getting behind a, getting behind a gun. You know, it just feels good. Does it remind you at all or connect you at all to being in the Marine Corps or being in Afghanistan and You know, that's like really weird. Like, but people like stack rocks um, for fun or some shit. I don't know. But sometimes you'll be walking in the middle of the woods and you see like stacked rocks, like like what they used to do over in fucking thing. And you're like, Jesus fucking Christ. Why why did they stack rocks in Sangin? Well, that because that was like an indication to them where their IEDs were, and the indication to like the locals and themselves of like, hey. This area has IEDs in it. Turns out Afghanistan's never very far away. Hunting predators like mountain lions is a whole different game than hunting prey animals like deer and elk that are all flight and no fight. I do love hunting cats though because uh, you're not you're not top dog. You know what I mean? Like so coming out by yourself and hunting something. Shearer tries to call in a mountain lion with an electronic call that sounds like a porcupine. Kind of like blasting Taylor Swift to lure in the Taliban. But he doesn't find any takers. So he packs up his gear and we hike back down to the truck. Oh, is this your high school right here? Yeah, this is high school right here, wow. Stevens. Yeah. I got into a lot of trouble here. Back in Rapid City, Shearer gives us a tour of his hometown. Uh, kind of the main main artery through town. Actually, our our downtown fire station is that one right there. You can see the oh, training yeah. tower. Oh, uh, wow. Kind of gray. Or the tan, sorry. Yeah. That's where I was um, all last year. Oh, is this a dirt track? Yeah, this is the dirt track we used to race oh, sweet. So I saw back there on the corner right, right on the, right there near the fire station, you pointed out that there's a vet center there too that says readjustment and counseling services. Oh, I don't know. You ever gone anywhere near that place? No. I don't do anything like that. And I never have. I had a, I had a really good transition out, man. Um, there's the whole sit around in a circle and fucking kumbaya. Like, it just, you know, it works for some people, man. It really does. But I find that everyone just deals with their own shit their own way. Like, my way of dealing with stuff is not to like talk about it
Shear's house is tucked at the end of a quiet street. Hey, his wife Courtney's at work when we show up, but his mom's here. My mom, Lori. Very nice to meet you. Yeah. And she's gonna keep an eye on six-year-old Bo and three-year-old Rhett while we visit with Brian. Looks like the boys have been kind of hard on the floors. Oh man. Oh, okay. So the house is in the midst of a major remodel. So the place is totally gutted, torn down to the studs in some parts. Big, big remodel. There was a big like load-bearing wall here. You can actually, actually you can oh, wow. see you yeah. can see where the wall was. There's lots of light from a big picture window that looks out on the Black Hills to the west, where Black Elk Peak towers over the horizon. That's the highest point east of the Rockies. Next to the window, there's a wide table that's spilling over with Courtney's impressive plant collection. Let me show you guys my shop real quick while we're, while we're here. Shearer's pride and joy is his garage, which he calls his shop. This is where he hangs trophies from his hunts and where he's rebuilding an old muscle car. So this is a 78 Camaro and it's, I don't know, what, six different colors. And I love it. <laughs> and I love it for that because it looks like shit. The Camaro's almost like ready for the dirt track down the street fine. where he plans to race it. His old hunting truck's parked this in here too. Man. I love it. This is my girl. I think I actually got it after we were right after we got back. I think this is what some of my deployment money went to. What, what little of it there was. Yeah. <laughs> the truck's got a special license plate with a purple heart medal on one side in the words combat wounded. Tell us about the license plate. So I'm not, I'm not the, I, I don't like like the recognition of like, oh, I got a purple heart plate. I, that's who I am. You know, that's not what it is. Um, this truck costs like 70 bucks to register and that shit's like 15. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it really, it really came down to that. You can just sit comfortably and I'll adjust to you. Down in Shearer's basement, we pop a couple of bush lights and sit down to talk about Sangin and what he's been up to for the last decade. Kick your feet up. Tommy cues up some clips from the first time I interviewed Shearer back at PB fires when he was 20 years old. What do you think about the Taliban in terms of them as fighters and what they're trying to do? The Taliban are cowards. Um, they hide among the, the population and they use innocent civilians as um, pretty much shields and buffers so that we can't get to them. They know our ROEs, they know what we can and can't do, and they use that to uh, their advantage and our disadvantage. And they're just, they're cowards. Are they more sophisticated than you thought they would be? <laughs> They're good at what they do. They know how to emplace their IEDs, they know how to uh, attack from multiple positions, and they're really able to uh, maneuver on you, but mainly because they can blend in with the populace. And they, I mean, they've been fighting forever, so it wouldn't, it's nothing you wouldn't expect. I sound like a kid in that, in that recording, man. Don't I sound like- You were. A fucking kid, yeah, I guess I was. Shearer's all grown up now. He's 30 years old with a wife and children, a good job, and a home of his own. He's come a long way from the kid who had to get his parents' permission to join the Marines. So when you signed your enlistment paperwork, we were already in the midst of two wars. We were already in Iraq and we were already in Afghanistan. What did you think the possibilities were for you getting deployed? Of course, I knew we were in wars at the time i mean as much as like any high school kid really knows and like cares you know but uh I, I knew the possibility was there the possibility became an inevitability almost as soon as Shearer finished recruit training and got to his new unit i do remember when they gave us a briefing of like yeah we're going to sangin and they pulled out uh the pictures of, of fires of our pb that we were going to and there was fucking bullet holes all over the walls and i was like holy fuck <laughs> you know what i mean like if you ever thought this was a game it fucking ain't this is this is life dude this is where we're going there's no backing out you signed up for this shit let's go i guess that's that's kind of the funny thing though is like did you really sign up for that like you mm -hmm. signed up to be willing to go fight but you didn't necessarily sign up to be willing to go to sangin like none of us could have found sangin or helmand province on a map when we were 19 or 18 until the orders came and the briefings came right. so i guess one of the things i'm trying to understand in all of this is like that 
mentality of the recruit versus the mentality of someone who's actually got the orders to go. Like walk me through the process of like you thinking through who's the enemy, where are we going? What's it going to be like? What is this war we're in? Etc. Yeah. I mean, uh, so I, <laughs> I have a very small scope of understanding of like the political motivations and shit of war, right? Like I'm just a grunt. Like, I go where the fuck I'm told big picture shit is beyond even what I give a fuck about, to be completely honest with you. The thought of going over there was, I mean, I knew what I signed up for, man. And I, and Hey, it was coming to fruition, you know, in life you make fucking decisions and then they have results. And that was my decision that I've knew and I, I wanted to do my entire life and the results were coming. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to sound like some like fucking gung ho cowboy or anything like that, but I just, I was just like, all right. When you're a soldier or a Marine at war, narrowing the focus isn't just normal. It can be necessary for survival. Worrying about the politics can be a fatal distraction from the mission. But for third squad, there was a very good reason to wonder about the big picture. It came on May 2nd, 2011 in the form of a late-night announcement from the White House about a special operations raid in Pakistan. Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. USA! 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 Back in the U.S., people poured out in the streets to celebrate bin Laden's death. But Third Squad's response was much different. I think we had, like, come off of a night patrol or some shit, and I remember we were walking in front of this building, and a command debt had gone off. Uh, somebody had command debted an IED that they'd found somewhere in the AO. That means Marines were safely detonating an IED they'd discovered. And I remember the cloud vividly looked like a fucking middle finger, like, in the sky, dude, like a middle finger in the sky. So I'm looking at this cloud that had just gone off and uh, we're walking in front of this compound and they're like, oh, hey, by the way, Osama bin Laden got killed. And I was we were just like, oh, cool. <laughs> Can we go home? And they're like, <laughs> no. It's like, well, I didn't yeah. figure and I don't fucking care. There's some history here that'll help you understand Shearer's nonplussed reaction to the death of America's number one target in the war on terror. Osama bin Laden was the reason the U.S. invaded Afghanistan in the first place. But his death didn't really change anything for the Marines on the ground in Sangin. Because by 2011, the war that most troops were fighting in Afghanistan didn't really have anything to do with bin Laden or al-Qaeda. And it hadn't for a long time, at least not directly. Bin Laden wasn't even from Afghanistan, and he hadn't been there since 2001, when the U.S. invasion force and its Afghan militia allies chased him and most of his al-Qaeda fighters across the border into Pakistan. In the face of today's new threat, the only way to pursue peace is to pursue those who threaten it. We did not ask for this mission, but we will fulfill it. Bin Laden was from Saudi Arabia, like 15 of the 19 September 11th hijackers. And he was only in Afghanistan before 9-11 because he really had nowhere else to go. He was being hunted by intelligence agencies all over the world after masterminding terrorist attacks in the 1990s, including a pair of bombings of American embassies in 1998. Two bombs exploded almost simultaneously today at the U.S. embassies in the East African nations of Kenya and Tanzania. At the time, Afghanistan was ruled by the Taliban, a brutal Islamist movement that came to power in 1996 at the tail end of a vicious civil war. Afghanistan's new rulers are called the Taliban, and they've begun to enforce a strict Islamic social code. These are Afghanistan's new soldiers of God, praying, they say, for peace and stability in a country that's known only conflict for nearly two decades. Bin Laden's terrorist activities didn't bother the Taliban. They welcomed him when no one else would. That's the short version of how bin Laden wound up planning the 9-11 attacks from Afghanistan. And it's why President Bush said he decided to attack Afghanistan on October 7, 2001, to kill or capture bin Laden and as many al-Qaeda fighters as possible. On my orders, 
the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. Overthrowing the Taliban regime was not the objective of the U.S. invasion that followed. But the Bush administration came up empty-handed in the hunt for bin Laden and wanted to show that it could avenge 9-11. The Taliban were low-hanging fruit, state enablers of terrorism who were perfect Islamist targets of opportunity. So the U.S. helped Afghan militias drive the Taliban from power. It only took about two months. By the middle of December 2001, the Taliban had all but vanished from most of the country. The people of Kabul have been liberated from a bigoted regime that could lock someone up for anything from criticizing its authority to failing to grow a long enough beard. Needless to say, gratifying to see the Taliban fleeing and the people of Afghanistan getting their country back. The Taliban's defeat was an illusion. They faded into the countryside and slipped across the border, but they started to regroup just as the Bush administration turned its focus to Iraq. By 2009, when I first traveled to Afghanistan, the Taliban were several years into a comeback that caught the Americans and their allies completely off guard. And to make matters worse, Afghanistan's own ragtag security forces were barely capable of protecting President Hamid Karzai in Kabul, let alone taking the fight to the Taliban in the hinterlands. Faced with the prospect of Afghanistan's collapse, which could mean the return of the Taliban and the return of al-Qaeda training camps, a new commander-in-chief, President Barack Obama, decided to order the Afghanistan surge. Without a new strategy and decisive action, our military commanders warned that we could face a resurgent al-Qaeda and a Taliban taking over large parts of Afghanistan. For this reason, in one of the most difficult decisions that I've made as president, I ordered an additional 30,000 American troops into Afghanistan. Now it was Obama's war. And it was almost like a totally different war than the one George Bush launched against al-Qaeda back in 2001. As far as 3rd Squad was concerned, their war was all about the Taliban. So when bin Laden got killed, it was just another headline from a faraway world. The al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden is dead. Killed by U.S. Navy SEALs at his hideout in Pakistan. Bin Laden was killed by a shot to the head, another to the chest. The world is safer. It is a better place because of the death of Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden's been dead for a decade when Shira and I are talking at his home in Rapid City. Now, Joe Biden's in the White House, and he says he's going to finish what Trump started when he negotiated a peace deal with the Taliban and pledged to withdraw American troops from Afghanistan. At this point, Biden still hasn't announced the final withdrawal date, but everybody knows it's coming. And a lot of veterans are starting to ask tough questions about what they did in the war. Others, like Shearer, are content to leave it all in the past. Like big picture, you just a guys on the ground. Like I didn't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Like if I'm going to be honest, I didn't give a fuck why we were there. We were there because we were disrupting the enemy movement of you know heroin and guns and shit down into like fuck. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we were just there for each other. Mm-hmm. You know. I don't like to look at it as like a going blindly without question because that's not what it is but it's like that's where the government's sending me obviously we're needed here so we're gonna go do our job here whatever we can do on our level to make the bigger picture work um now what that big picture ultimately ends up being is out of my fucking pay grade you know what i mean yeah i mean this is this is the shit that has been keeping me awake at night for a really fucking long time now That willingness to serve, literally that willingness to die or to kill, to protect your country, to serve your country is something really powerful and really important. And for me, where I get frustrated is the idea that maybe people would take that willingness for granted and use it for reasons that weren't good. I don't know. I don't like to let shit like that, like, keep me awake and stuff. Who gives a fuck about the large scale shit? We were PB fires, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's really easy for me to understand why we went into Afghanistan. That's where the attacks were planned on 9-11. That's where bin Laden was. That's where the training camps were. 
that makes a lot of sense. It always has made sense. I think it makes sense to pretty much everybody. Right. By the time you guys got there, it was almost like a totally different war. And so for a long time, I've been trying to understand how do we get from that point, hunting and killing bin Laden, to the point where there's 100,000 people in the country, 100,000 just people in uni- American uniform, not including all the other foreign forces, plus all the contractors and all that stuff. And I guess like at the end of the day, it's a civilian led military. It's politicians who send people to war. It's not their battalion commanders or division commanders. It's people who are voted into office. And I feel like the decision to send people to die should be a decision that's made with extreme care and concern. So, like I said, I feel like it's been my job to connect those two experiences, the frontline experience and the big picture experience. Yeah. But I don't fault people like you at all for saying, I just want this to be behind me. I don't want to think about all that shit. No, I mean, I appreciate that. And I, I mean, I think that people should have to answer for like, why the fuck are we still doing this? You know what I mean? Cause you know, it ain't these motherfuckers kids that are out there on the front lines. No, they're fucking on their yachts and shit. Shearer may be untroubled by the messy politics that mired the U S and Afghanistan. But to be fair, he's equally uninterested in the Taliban's reasons for fighting. I asked you back then, what do you think the Taliban are fighting for? All of you basically said drugs and something like that. And is that still your opinion? Do you still think that's what they were fighting for? To be honest, I don't even care. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, not to like dodge your question, but like, I don't care what they're fighting for, really. They're wrong, whatever it is. What if they were fighting because there were Marines there? Like, what if it was that simple? Like an Afghan Red Dawn? Basically. Like, what if they were fighting just because we were there? That's what I always ask myself. Would they still have been fighting if we weren't there? I mean, the only reason that we were fighting in that spot is because that's where we ended up. I mean, they'd still be doing their fucking jihad shit in the country. We just happened to be duking it out and singing because that's where we were at. They'd be fighting their fucking war wherever it was. The Taliban had reasons to fight foreign troops that went beyond jihad or holy war. In their own minds, they'd been the rightful rulers of Afghanistan for five years, and they never accepted the government that the U.S. and NATO helped install by force in Kabul, which was led by some of their most bitter enemies from the Afghan civil war. Helmand province, where Sangin is, was the epicenter of the Afghan opium poppy industry, which generated billions for the Taliban's war chest. So it makes sense to me that they were willing to fight to the last man to hold on to it. It also makes sense that foreign troops who were sent there fought for their own lives with everything they had. What makes a lot less sense is how foreign troops wound up in places like Sangin in the first place and why they stayed for so long at such an extraordinary cost. Why a seemingly clear mission to capture or kill bin Laden morphed into a $2 trillion nation-building effort and an all-out war against the Taliban, who, terrible as they were, never attacked the U.S. That's why I have a hard time justifying the killing and the dying in the bigger picture. But that's just me. Shearer takes a different view. I don't even see them as people. I really don't. The Taliban or Afghans? The, t- the Taliban. The Taliban. Okay. No, 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 man. There's there's some Afghans that... Dude, Afghans are just in a hard spot. Mm-hmm. They're just in a hard fucking spot, man. But if Taliban's shooting out of a house, like... House is coming down. Fucking house gotta go, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a big hunter, you know. And I'm not saying this to sound like any sort of, you know, badass or, like, just don't care, but, like... I've shot prairie dogs, like prairie dogs, like fucking ground rats, that I've felt worse about shooting. I don't give a fuck. There's that There's that old, like, oh, what do you feel when you kill somebody? Oh, recoil? Like, hmm. that joke, you've heard that yeah. joke. I don't know. I don't know how you can just, like, disconnect like that. Like, you would think the act of killing a person is a big deal, but it's it's not. I don't care.
be back after the break. Hannah Storm and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know how many people Shearer killed in Afghanistan, and I don't really care to know. What I do know is that a few years before 3rd Squad got to Sangin, I was carrying a loaded rifle in Iraq, and I was ready and willing to kill anyone who threatened me and my friends. I feel lucky that I never had to pull the trigger, but I have no idea how I'd feel now if I had taken a life. You never know until you do. Some people take the killing hard, even when they have to do it to save their own life. Others are able to kill without regret in the right setting, like in a war, in a place like Sangin. And as terrifying as it may sound, both reactions are normal. The ways people live with the moral quandaries and trauma of war are as varied as the survivors. Even back in Sangin, when Shear was only 20, he already had a sense that he'd come out more or less all right. Do you think the, the full weight of everything that you've seen and experienced over here has set in yet? I don't know what it's like when you come back from combat. I have no idea, so I think I think everything I think I'll be good. I'll be I'll be okay when we get back, yeah. I mean, you just kind of accept it and move on. Getting to know Shearer again here in Rapid City, it seems like his predictions were accurate. I feel like I'm pretty fortunate in the respect that I don't get flashbacks or like nightmares or anything like that i would almost go as far as to say i'm like pretty 100 percent on i'm not gonna say leaving it behind that wouldn't be the right thing to say but like i don't dwell on it you know what i mean i have so much in my life right now that is so much good that was a chapter of my life and i am on new chapters does that make sense yeah not that you can't go back in the book. Not that you can't flip some pages back mm-hmm. and reread some shit. And it's not like you forgot it. Not at all. No, I could I mean, never can, forget it if I tried. Dude, like I can impossible. literally, in my mind right now, I can picture like every rock 
and stick and bush and tree and building in that AO. Like, I can remember every fucking detail. The details of September 15th, 2011, the day Dutcher died, are especially sharp. So is Shearer's memory of their friendship and of how it felt to lose him. Dutch, man, he was... He was just a fucking goof, dude. Like, the dude was just a goofball. <laughs> oh, man. He was a good guy, man. Like, he like almost, he was, like, so so good that he didn't belong there. Like, like, I don't even know how he ended up in the infantry anyways. I think what affected me most about Dutch, I mean, aside from losing a brother, obviously, was we were so fucking close dude we were so close to making it out and uh we kind of had a good run there where nobody got hit and then just like sudden like that you know what i mean another dust cloud another deafening crack Another friend on the ground, bleeding out. Shearer had a trauma bag full of medical supplies. He wanted to rush in to help Dutcher, but Mendoza and another squad member, David Ortega, got there first, along with the corpsman who replaced Doc Forrett. I wanted to go in so bad, but I knew that I couldn't, because if there if something else went off, I was it, right? Like, if, so, if another IED goes off... I'm all that there is as far as, I mean, everybody has like tourniquets and shit, but like I had the next trauma bag and I just remember feeling like so helpless sitting at that wall, watching them all in the courtyard. And then they pulled them out and we were still working on it in this field, waiting for the chasm back. Yeah, man, we were just dumping our bags of shit, trying to stuff him and just pretty much just trying to patch up anything we Anything we could with tourniquets and quick clot and all that kind of shit. And I thought he was going to be good. I thought, if there was anybody, I thought that he was going to be the one that was able to uh, make it out of that. Based on the injuries that he had? Yeah, but just based on the injuries. Like, he wasn't... like an immediate amputee or anything like that. It was like all internal. So it wasn't as visual as what a lot of the other ones were to the same like effect of trauma. And man, we dumped our shit, like just working on him and, and then just wasn't, wasn't enough, I guess. A couple minutes later, we got a hero fuck man we were like sitting there and I was like fuck fuck the gruesome things Shearer witnessed and survived in Sangin disturbed his sleep for a while after he came home when I got back I had like the nightmares and like a reel it was like a movie reel of like fucked up shit you know it's like fucked up scene after fucked up scene after fucked up scene courtney used to call it like pts sleep you know <laughs> i'd be like fucking cussing and fighting and shit in my sleep but man it's oh really yeah and i don't know when that went away but it did these days, Shearer sleeps fine. The nightmares are gone. Bits of debris that embedded in his skin from the June 12th explosion still work their way out from time to time. But there's no trace of the abrasions that he says made it look like someone took a sandblaster to the side of his face. Aside from hearing loss and an annoying ringing in his right ear called tinnitus, he says he's healed from the war. He's busy with his life back home, not stuck in Sangin. I got a lot of people that depend on me, people upstairs right now that, that depend on me to be there. And I got a lot of things going for me that I can't just, I can't be stuck. You know, I'm trying to watch my kids grow up, not watch a bunch of fucked up shit that I've seen 10 years ago. 
My conversations with Forit and Mendoza about survivor's guilt are still burning in my mind while we're talking. I tell Shearer about Mendoza's extreme feelings of responsibility for Dutcher's death. He literally said, I killed Dutcher. No, that's... That is not correct. You know who killed Dutcher was the fucking Taliban. To hear him say that, like that... It breaks my heart, man, because nobody should have that riding on him. Shearer says he's found peace by thinking about what the guys who died would want for the living. If it had been me and I could come back and see that someone was like struggling with that, I'd be like, dude, just it's all good. Live your life, dude. Be good. Be a good person. Raise a good family. Make it worth it. But don't dwell on it. I did it for you, man. I did it because I love you, you know. Don't let it ruin your life. Later that night, we go to Shearer's dad's house on the outskirts of Rapid City for a family get-together. His parents split up when he was six years old, but they've remained such good friends that they still hang out together with their new spouses. It's taco night and the gang's all here. His mom and dad, both of his step-parents, his brother Jason, and a bunch of aunts, uncles, cousins, and high school friends. So we got stuff for Hershey's s'mores and Reese's s'mores. I remember Shearer telling me at patrol base fires that when he was in high school, he couldn't wait to get out of Rapid City. But now I can see why he couldn't wait to get back home after four years in the Marines. He has an incredible support network of family and friends here, and I have to imagine that it helped smooth his transition to civilian life. We take our tacos out to what Shearer's dad, Darren, refers to as his bitchin' fire pit. That's where Darren and Lori, Shearer's mom, tell us about what it was like to send Brian off to war. Um, it was just the, the worst 10 months of my life. And Lori was there at 3 a.m. on March 23, 2011, to wave goodbye to Brian as he climbed on a bus at Camp Pendleton and rolled out with the squad for the flight to Sangin. It was Brian's 20th birthday. Brian only got to call home about once a month and only for a few minutes. Lori remembers being in a work meeting one day when her cell phone rang. But I, I, got, I jumped up, saw that it was coming from 808, you know, from, through Hawaii, and, and I just burst into tears and ran out and got into my, my office and I was bawling my eyes out. And, and so... Brian calls back about 10 minutes later, and he goes, Mom, what are you crying about? I said, I missed your call. I just missed your call. <laughs> Those phone calls were a lifeline to his parents. So you call any and every chance you get, no matter what time it is. So he did. It's 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. My phone rings. Of course, sound asleep. Wake up. Get excited. There's only one person calling you at that time of night. So I sit up on the side of the bed. And uh, it's, it's Brian, and we're talking, and everything's good. And then just all of a sudden, I hear a shh, boom, shh, boom, that, 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 that. And Brian says, fuck, I got to go. Click. Damn. That's it. So I'm sitting there, you know, feet on the floor in my underwear, side of the bed. Can I cuss her? <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. So I stand up, you know, fucking throw the phone down and start screaming, you motherfuckers, you know, yelling at my wife, get me on a plane to Afghanistan. I'm killing every motherfucker in that country. They're trying to kill my kid. Since you couldn't do that, what was the next best thing? You know, how did you... I walked about 16 miles inside the house. Laps, loops, coffee, just spun up, spun out. You're so helpless. Well, I'm you're glad helpless. your son is home. Me too. 
Me too. Tommy, who's also a dad, can clearly relate to this conversation. I would imagine just that whole deployment was white-knuckled for you, right, as a dad? I mean, that, that mo- those moments sound especially harrowing, but I'm sure you never really were able to relax all that much, right? No, it was, no, it was, uh, God, I hate to even admit some weakness here, but every, every guy's tough until he's not. But uh, I was at work. I think life's good. And uh, I'm standing at the counter talking to a customer, and I got tears rolling down my cheeks. And he's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, why are you crying? I said, what? And I reach up and touch my cheek. I got tears just rolling down my cheeks. Had no idea. Wow. Yeah, no idea. And so uh, called called my wife and said, you need to make me an appointment with somebody. I said, because I'm talking to a man about heavy equipment and I'm crying. This shit's weighing on me. Darren did end up seeing yeah, a therapist to help with his anxiety. But he says it was hell right up until the end. The day he called from Maine, he calls, he's like, I'm in the States. I was good. Instantly. That moment on till right now, I've been good. Like I said, every every guy likes to think he's tough, but man, that emotional roller coaster, I, I just didn't even know. Brian has stayed quiet during most of this conversation. Now being a dad, like, I can't even imagine not knowing. You know what I mean? Like, not knowing what's going on. Yeah, it's it gotta was, be it was horrible. fucking excruciating, man. It was horrible. Just like his parents, Brian Shearer has two sons now. His oldest, Bo, is about the same age Brian was when he was doing pull-ups in the Marine recruiter's office, trying to win one of those posters of the dudes with the camo-painted faces. Soon enough, it could be Bo asking Brian for permission to enlist. Shearer had never heard the story of how that phone call from Afghanistan sent his dad into a tailspin. And I could tell it really moved him to hear Darren describe the feeling of helplessness when he couldn't do anything to protect him. Maybe now he can understand his parents' fear and love in a way that he couldn't when he was a 20-year-old Marine in Sangin with nothing to lose but a PlayStation. Fear and love for a son whose dreams of going to war became his parents' nightmare. A boy who could have been snuffed out with a single well-aimed shot. Next time on Third Squad, we head back over to Spearfish to visit with Third Squad radio operator John Bollinger and his wife, Hannah. I never came back. You know, none of us came back. John Bollinger went to the war in Afghanistan, but that's not who came back from the war in Afghanistan. Physically, he was home. I don't think it was really until, you know, second week being back. Woke up in the middle of the night getting choked. No matter how much good or how much of a difference you try and make, you are still a killer. You can't undo that. Third Squad is written and produced by Elliot Woods, Tommy Andres, and Maria Byrne. It's an heirloom media production distributed by iHeartMedia. Funding support from the National Endowment for the Humanities in collaboration with the Center for War and Society at San Diego State University. Original music by Mondo Boys. Editing and sound design by John Ward. Fact-checking by Ben Kalin. Special thanks to Scott Carrier, Marianne Andre, Ted Genoways, Benjamin Bush, Caitlin Esch, Carrie Gracie, Kevin Connolly, and Lena Ferguson. 
If you want to see the map of the PB Fires AO that Shearer and Bollinger drew, check out the episode 5 page on thirdsquad.com, where you'll also find pictures of Brian Shearer from 2011 and 2021. If you got a minute, please leave us a rating in your preferred podcast app. It'll help other people find the show. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Elliot Woods. Hannah Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.